0: For those who may not know, Pastor Caleb is out of town visiting family in Kentucky. Uh, He sends his blessing. Um, But since he's out of town, I have the privilege of sharing the word with you this morning. Uh, But before we get into anything, please pray with me. Lord, we thank you. We thank you so much for all that you do. The fact that we're here, being able to worship your name, it is because of your mercy And I pray that today we may be able to see more of you. That you may help us to see more of Christ. That you may be glorified, Lord. And that your spirit may work through the word. We thank you for all that you do. In your son's name I pray. Amen. Well, happy New Year's Eve. You know what that means, right? New Year's resolutions. This Tuesday, every Planet Fitness will be filled with people that will probably use the machines once, and not use them again until the next week. Are you one of those people? This Tuesday will be the start of people learning how to cook, trying a new hobby, resolving to read more, trying to eat healthy. This Tuesday, many people will resolve to start new things and trying to improve their lives in some way. This Tuesday will be the start of a phrase that will die out after the second week, which is new year, new me. And the reason I say this Tuesday is because no one actually ever starts on January 1st. Everyone always starts on January 2nd. And many of these resolutions can be very good things that it can improve your life somehow, but sometimes we pursue these things because we are discontent with the way life has been. Uh, we try to compensate with some new form of pursuit or goal, we can try to find some momentary satisfaction in seeking new things only to find out that once we get them, they don't really fulfill what they have promised, which is happiness and joy. The question we need to ask is, when was the last time you felt satisfied in life? What thing or person is that you finally got that gave you some form of satisfaction? How long did it last? A few weeks? few days, a few hours, and sometimes we pursue other things to find joy and satisfaction only to realize that our pursuits are only making us emptier. Now, the text that we will be studying today says that the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. And if I could sum up today's sermon in one sentence, it would be this, the Lord is our ultimate good. And the reason he is our ultimate good is because of the hope and the peace that comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if we cry out to the Lord, we will be satisfied. Now please open your Bibles to Psalm 16. Please open your Bibles up to Psalm 16. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel, and the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption." You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, are pleasures forevermore. Now, for simplicity, I have three points for you today. Point number one, the Lord who is our good. The Lord who is our good. Point number two, the risen Christ who is our hope and peace. The risen Christ who is our hope and peace. And point number three, the man who cries out the man who cries out. And then I have three very short application points at the end. But let's start with point number one, the Lord who is our good. Now, at first glance, you will see that the first words that David says is, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Now, there is no context given in this psalm as to why David is crying out to the Lord. It's unsure if it's a sickness, his enemies, depression, depression, There are no clues in the psalm that help us to point to a direction of trial that is going on in David's life. But what we can see is the person who David is calling upon. King David is crying out to the Lord. And if you notice in verse 2, he says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. This might sound redundant because why does David say, you are my Lord, you uh, you are my Lord, Instead, he says, I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. And that's like saying, I say to Rocky, you are my Rocky. Or I say to Wally, you are my Wally. Now, some of you are like, oh, that's really sweet. Or, "Yo, that's kind of weird, dude. Um, but David is not trying to sound sweet. And he's definitely, definitely not trying to be weird. Um, but the language he uses is one of submission. If you look at this psalm in the Hebrew, what David is saying is, I say to Yahweh, you are my Adonai. And this is significant to look at because first he addresses God with his name. Who is Yahweh? He is the creator of the universe. He is the one who spoke this world into existence. He is the one who has made a covenant with Israel to save them. Yahweh is the supreme ruler of the world, he is the supreme ruler of the universe and everything else that exists. And then he says, You are my Adonai, which means my Lord or my master. Which, in simple terms, David is saying, I say to God, You are my master. And this is significant because David is not just acknowledging that God exists, like many people profess to believe that God exists and then just keep doing what they want to do. But David is saying, I submit myself to God as my master. He's making himself a humble servant of the Lord. And do you see, this is, a, this is a phrase of humility and submission where David says, this is the one in whom I take refuge, the one that is master over my life. I can take refuge and be safe because he is the sovereign ruler of the universe. And David is crying out to the Lord because he knows that he can take refuge in God because of who he is. God is self-sustaining. God lacks no love because the Trinity fulfill each other in love. God does not need to sleep. God does not need to eat. God has the ability to wipe out nations. He has the ability to wipe out the world with the flood, which he has. All creation obeys him, the animal, the oceans, the crops. God is the one who knows all things, the one who sees all things, and the one who is all wise. And this is the God that David says this about. I have no good apart from you. I have no good apart from you. Now the word used here for good is the same word that is used in Genesis chapter 1 where God says, let there be light, and he saw that it was good. God called the dry land earth and the waters he called the sea, and God saw that it was good. The earth brought forth vegetations and trees were bearing fruit, and God saw that it was good. The word good is used to describe something which which brings delight, that brings pleasure, and that is agreeable. So, most of you know this, I've spoken about this before, but one of the most memorable trips that I've had was when I went down to Texas for a friend's wedding. And also, some of you are tired of hearing of this trip. Um, But a few days before the wedding, we were uh, staying at an Airbnb, which had this really beautiful view. Uh, In the back back of the house was this big forest, and there was a creek that was running horizontally from the house. There was deers, and there was owls. Um, it was just very nature like. I, I loved it. I enjoyed it. And then the first day that I was there, me and one of my friends sat on the back deck of the house, and we just sat there for about two or three hours, with some country music, a little country music playing in the background. Um, but there was no loud cars hon- honking at each other, there was no distraction from TV or social media. It was just enjoying the, the good creation of God and seeing the sun go down. And we just delighted in that scenery. It felt good. It was pleasant. I enjoyed that very much because it felt peaceful and and restful. Um, Later on, my my other friend came out and asked me if I was depressed because I hadn't talked or done anything for about two or three hours. Um, But honestly, I was just stuck in a moment where I was contemplating the good creation of the Lord. And I believe that is exactly what David is feeling when he says, I have no good apart from the Lord. David is, he's stuck in this moment. And David has his gaze somewhere that is causing him to delight, that gives him pleasure, that gives him peace and rest. David has his gaze on God himself. He has taken delight in God himself. David is finding rest and peace in God himself. The reason why David is able to say, I have no good apart from the Lord Is because he knows that all other things that he has pursued have come back empty. And the only thing that can fully satisfy him is the Lord. In verse 4, he says, The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. So he is saying, go ahead. Run after other gods. Run after other idols. Run after those things which you think will bring you satisfaction. And watch and see that your sorrows will only multiply. Your sorrows will grow more and more while you go on a wild chase after these gods, after these things, after these idols. And David says, no, that's not going to be me. I'm going to run after the Lord. I have no good apart from the Lord. And David knows well that we are beings that were made for God, made to walk with God, made to live for God, made to love God. And if that's not taking place, he will be an empty barrel begging to be filled with things that will eventually turn to dust. Several decades later, David's son Solomon would write in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 12, that God has built eternity within man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. That means that within each human being, God has built this innate awareness where man knows that there is something more to life than what he can actually see, and he will not find rest until he figures out that what he needs is the Lord. But some people actually never get there. And when David says, I have no good apart from the Lord, that is a statement that means I am fully satisfied in the Lord. God has built eternity into man's heart, and David has found that the purpose and the answer to that is to have his gaze and his heart set upon God and God alone. There is nothing else that David can delight, take pleasure in, or find satisfaction that is not in God. And the Lord is David's ultimate good, and that is David's treasure. And this is not a statement of satisfaction and trust that David, this is a statement of satisfaction and trust where he puts in the Lord. He puts his trust in the Lord. This is not just a blind trust. But look at how David writes about the Lord in verse 5. He says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. For one, David is saying, I need the Lord more than I need food and drink. He is saying that the Lord is far more important to have than the portions of food or cups that can make him happy. That is because even if David goes without food and drink, he knows that the Lord can sustain him. This is something that goes even far beyond just food and drink. He makes an illustration that what he needs in life are not just things like food and drinks, clothes, or amusements. What David needs is the Lord. I know this might sound redundant, but this is written in the scriptures for us so that we can keep in mind that we need the Lord. And notice how David is constantly trusting God with his life. He knows that even if he didn't have the basic necessities of life, God would be his portion and his cup. And then he says, you hold my lot. The Lord holds our lot. Which is language that is saying, God holds my future. God controls what happens to me. This is a confession of acknowledging the sovereignty of God in all of life. David can say, you know everything and have purpose for everything. And when things don't go my way, I can trust that you hold my lot and it will be good because you are my good. That's why he says in verse 6, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Back in uh, April 2022, we had a church cleanup day. And uh, my responsibility for that day was to paint over all of the parking lot lines because they had been fading away. So I went line by line at each parking spot and sprayed over each and every one of them to make them clear and visible. I did all the white lines, all the yellow lines, all the blue lines, even the handicap lines. And uh, this is a little embarrassing. Um, I was trying to do the handicap sign, you know, the person in the wheelchair. Um, And when I was spray painting, uh, the wind blew really hard. So it looked like I put some hair on the handicap person. which I think it gives our parking lot a little bit of flavor, you know? Um, I'm sorry, forgive me. Fire me if you need to. Um, somebody actually walked by, looked at the sign, and then looked at me and then walked away. And I don't know exactly what that meant. But the reason the lines needed to be painted is so that we can see where our cars need to go. Parking lines, parking spot lines are boundary lines that say this is where your car is, is supposed to go. Don't park over the line. Don't park horizontally from the line. Park your line in, Park your car in between these lines. And when you park your car within those lines, at that moment, that is your parking spot. And then David's, David is saying that the lines that have been drawn for him have fallen in a pleasant place because the lines represent the amount of fellowship that he has with God. David is parked in a space where the lines are so far apart that he can't even see them. And within those lines is the sweet fellowship that he has with the Lord, which shows that the fellowship that the Lord has initiated with him is way beyond his own vision. And that is David's inheritance. David's inheritance is God himself. The lines that, that have fallen represent God being David's portion, a portion that never ends. And God gives himself to his people. God gives himself Because the inheritance of those, as an inheritance of those who are his saints. And God sustains David. God gives fellowship to David. God gives his presence to David. And God directs his future. David is saying no matter what your sovereign plan for my life is, I can be satisfied in the place you put me because my inheritance is the Lord Himself. And as long as I have the Lord, I know that I'm good. And even when David fails to believe this with his heart, God is there to point him in the right direction because he is faithful and because he never fails. Our hearts will, never, will not perfectly trust the Lord at times, even in this life. But God is with us and God is faithful and the Lord is the one who gives us counsel. And that is what he says in verse 7. Verse 7. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 says that he is a wonderful counselor. He is the one that speaks to the dark night of the soul. He is the one who helps us work through the turmoil we find ourselves in. And he is the one who counsels David even when his heart is faint. And he does so through his word. His word in which he has revealed himself is the way that he speaks to us and the way that he ministers to us and how he counsels us. Brothers and sisters, David says, I have no good apart from the Lord. Not because he just feels good and he gets butterflies in his stomach when he thinks of the Lord. David is not just going off of what he feels. If that was his motivation, that would die in a matter of minutes. But David can be satisfied in the Lord. Because the Lord has revealed Himself to David, and David has learned the character and the person of God, and He has learned to trust that God. Which means that David has good theology. The Lord counseled David through His Word, and David's mind has been transformed to know who God really is. And having good theology is what grounds David in the Lord. God has revealed Himself. And he has given us everything that we need to know about God, his plan of salvation, how to worship him, how to obey him. Having good and proper theology led David to trust in God's character when things were not right. Proper theology led David to know what he has, that he has no good apart from the Lord. Proper theology taught David that he has pleasures forevermore in God's presence. It's not just about what we feel. But theology matters. If theology leads us to have a knowledge that puffs up, and then, then there's something that is wrong with our hearts. But good and proper theology that is studied by someone who has a heart that is humbled by God should lead to a life of obedience to God that is satisfied in him. Amen. It is when good theology mixed with humility and obedience that our lives can overflow with the goodness and gracious presence of God. Good and proper theology leads to proper worship of God, leads to proper love of God, and proper practical living fueled by a passion to have more of God. Wonderful counselor is our Lord. And that teaches David to have no good apart from the Lord. And that is point one. Point two, the risen Christ who is our hope and peace. The risen Christ who is our hope and peace. Let's look at verses 9 to 10 in Psalm 16. He says, Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. David is saying that he has this hope in the Lord because the Lord will not allow him to die or see corruption. But what if I told you that verses 9 to 10 is specifically referencing the resurrection of Christ. And in order to prove that, we need to go to the New Testament. So let's turn to Acts. It should be up here on the screen. Let's see what Acts chapter 2, verses 25 to 32 says. And the Word of God says, For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with him an oath to him that he would, would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he, w- he was not abandoned to Hades, nor his flesh see corruption. This Jesus raised up and, and that all we are, we are all witnesses. And that was Peter speaking. Now look at what Paul says in Acts 13 verses 35 to 38. He says, therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. So if we are reading the New Testament correctly, Both the Apostle Peter and Paul are quoting from Psalm 16 and are saying that when David wrote verses 9 to 10, he was not talking about himself, but he was talking about the resurrection of Jesus. And they gave two reasons for that. The first reason, because David died and he is still dead. The bones of David are laying somewhere in the Middle East where he was buried. So when he says, you will not let your Holy One see corruption, he couldn't have been referring to himself because he saw death. And the second reason why Peter and Paul say that David wasn't talking about himself was that in the moment he wrote those verses, David was acting as a prophet, and the Lord was revealing to him that somewhere down the line, one of his descendants would come, and he would be the one to conquer death and to, and, and to bring hope of a new life. And that descendant was and is Jesus Christ who rose from the dead. And that was the hope of David. That he knew even though he would die, Jesus would be raised from the dead and also raised, and would also raise him up when he comes back for the second time, making all things new. But for Jesus to be raised from the grave, he first had to die. And Jesus Christ had to die on the cross. Why? Because of the sinful nature that is embedded into all of us through the fall of Adam. Our sinful nature has led us to sin again and again and again against the holy God. And no matter how many times you have heard this, if you try to stand before God in your own power, we will be declared guilty and our sentence will be an eternity under God's wrath. But Jesus came into the world. He lived a life that was perfect and pleasing to God. And there he was a pleasing sacrifice where he took the punishment that we deserved And the eternal, all-powerful God poured his wrath on his own son because that is how grave our sin against God is, that he had to punish his own son. So that when you and I repent of our sins and we run to Christ, God no longer sees us, but he sees Jesus Christ standing on our behalf. If you are here today and you are not a Christian, I urge you to repent and to come to Jesus who says that he will never turn anyone away. You can run after so many other gods, but they will all fail you. Run to Jesus, who can save you from God's wrath and satisfy you completely with his love. It is through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross that we have been deemed righteous. But you know what the interesting thing is? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, But to us who are being saved, that is the power of God. Before any of us were ever saved, the gospel was foolish to us. The idea of atonement and resurrection is not normal for us to think about. Uh, One of my favorite things about living here in Levittown is that it is a nice and safe neighborhood and I can go out on walks. My old neighborhood wasn't that safe, so I didn't really walk a lot. Um, So in the summer, I walked almost every night And one day in July, when I was walking down the street, uh, there was a girl who got out of her car, she started walking a little bit behind me, and then all of a sudden she turns around and she screams, Megan, you're a perfect person, I love your soul. Now the real story is that in my mind, I was like, yeah, okay, perfect, I should go ask her if she's ever lied before, Um, but I just kept walking. But let's pretend for a second that instead of just continuing to walk, I turned around and I went up to Megan's car, and I knock on the window, and she lowers the window a little bit because she sees this weird, big-looking Hispanic guy approaching her car. (laughs) And then I say to her, listen, I I just heard that you're you're a perfect person, and I just want to ask you, would you die on a cross for me? I have so many sins in my life, and I need you to give your life up for mine, and then after you die, I just need you to rise three days later so I can just know that it it worked. You know what would happen within the next 10 minutes? I would be in handcuffs, taken to jail, probably also to a psych ward, and I'll be calling Pastor Caleb saying, listen, you got to get me out of here because these guys are looking at me all weird. You know why that would happen? Because to the world, it is foolishness, the idea that we have sinned against God and that we need someone to stand in our place. The idea of atonement and resurrection is not common for us. And sometimes even after we believe, the message of the gospel becomes familiar and boring to us. But this is the power of God. The message of the gospel is God's power to save and to redeem his people, a people for himself. Why did God choose this way? I don't know. But as Romans 11, to 34 says, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who knows the mind of the Lord fully? No one. Who gives counsel to God? No one. He is the one who gives counsel to us. And that is what David is saying, that, his, that he has hope and he rejoices because he knows that God has a plan. And that plan was to send his son to die on a cross, to rise from the grave. That is what makes the gospel. It is the death and the resurrection of Christ. If Jesus didn't, didn't die first, then there would be no resurrection. And if Jesus died and stayed dead, that means that our faith will be in vain. That is what what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, we would have no hope. It would have been in vain if Jesus died and didn't rise. But this is David's hope. That as he prophesied and as he looked down the corridors of time, he saw that his descendant Jesus Christ would accomplish what he could not. And that is why he says, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. Because David knows that even though he is going to die eventually he will be raised up again because Jesus rose again and promised to raise up those who died believing in him and that is why in verse 2 he says I have no good apart from you because in this life David has no good apart from God and even in death he will have no good apart from God because the resurrection of Jesus makes it possible for him to enjoy the Lord even more in eternity Point Number three: the man who cries out. At the beginning of point one, I mentioned that there is no context that gives us specific details as to what David is going through. Um, there is nothing in the Psalm itself that tells us why David is in turmoil or why he is crying out. But one thing is clear is that he is crying out to God. He is pleading with God to be his rescue to be his refuge, to be his fortress. And the important thing to see in this passage is not the type of suffering that David is enduring. The important thing to see is where David is running to. The important thing to see is the object of his faith. Most of you know that a few months ago, I was out for a while because I had a surgery for a torn quadricep tendon. And uh, one day while I was recovering I was talking to one of my friends who's a pastor here on the island, and uh, he was telling me that in the summer his father had been killed. And I asked him, What do you think the Lord has been showing you through the season? And he said to me, For a long time, I have felt like life has just been good and I've just been living peace of, peacefully and joyfully. But going through the death of my father, the Lord has been teaching me to love this world less. And when he said that, it sparked something in me where I said, that's exactly how I feel as I'm going through this trial. As my body breaks and is fragile and needs to be fixed, the Lord teaches me to love this world less because I am merely a sojourner in this world. LBC, I can tell you that through all of the trials, I have felt the brokenness of this fallen world, and it makes me yearn and long for the Lord even more. And that is exactly what the Lord is teaching David in this passage. The Lord is teaching David to love this world less because that is exactly what he does in our suffering. In our suffering, the Lord awakens this awareness in us that there is something that has gone catastrophically wrong in this world, that this world has fallen. It's filled with sin far from God. And in suffering, we feel it strongly within our bodies, in our mind. And in our emotions, we feel the tug of the Lord saying, you're just passing through this world. This is not your home and don't live like it is. Why else would David say in verse 4, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply? Because he knows that the moment we start to pursue other things above pursuing the Lord, we grow in loneliness, in discontentment, in sorrow, and in hopelessness. We think that by pursuing the things we think will make us happy, then we will truly be happy. But the scripture says that is wrong thinking. If, you pers- if we pursue things in order to make ourselves happy, and we make that the aim of our lives, our sorrows will only grow heavier. And when David says to pursue another God," he's not just talking about a statue, a statue or, or a shrine. Things are things that we can put, he's talking about things that we can put as God in our own hearts that we worship. And even if you are pursuing something that God calls good, but if you pursue it as something that you think will bring you ultimate satisfaction, it will still bring you sorrow because it is possible to love the right things in the wrong way. What is it that you are pursuing that you think will bring you ultimate satisfaction and happiness? Is it marriage? Is it a good career? Is it having lots of money? Is it fitness and health? Is it security? Is it never feeling pain, physical pain, or emotional pain? Is it just having stuff? Is it a a boyfriend or a girlfriend? None of these things are evil in themselves. They can actually be enjoyed properly and biblically when we see and love them as a gift of God that is given mercifully for His glory. But when we love and pursue these things, making these things the ultimate means to our satisfaction and happiness, then we have made a God and an idol of these things. And our sorrows will multiply. And maybe you're pursuing sinful things, thinking that you will find happiness in them. The point is, David says, wherever you find yourself, if you seek other things beside the Lord as your ultimate source of satisfaction and happiness, Your sorrows will only grow. And he understands that, which is why in his suffering he is crying out to the Lord. He's saying, Lord, save me in my suffering. Lord, give me hope because things are falling apart. Lord, preserve me because I have no strength in myself. And look at what verse 8 in Psalm 16 says I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. He's not saying, I take and place God where I want him. But the language that he is using paints a picture of where the disposition of his heart is. So if David is facing over here, but God is over there, David is saying, I'm turning my whole body completely so that my gaze and my heart may be on the Lord. He he, he will not be shaken, means that whatever suffering or trial or enemy that comes his way, he will not fear because he knows that God is the supreme ruler of the universe, the supreme ruler of this world who has millions of angels at his command that can destroy the world with the word that he speaks. And he can rest in that. And he turns his eyes to the Lord wherever he is. He can find rest in the God who is crying out. He can find satisfaction in the God that he is crying to. And that is why he is able to say, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. David has falling lines all around him that mark the portion that is given to him. And that portion is the Lord. The Lord is all around him. The Lord is his inheritance. He finds a pleasant place while he takes refuge in the Lord. Do you know what the outcome of that is? The outcome is verse 11. He says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What happens when someone cries out to the Lord in faith? What happens when someone sets the Lord before them? That person is filled with a faith that is firm that finds their joy and satisfaction in the Lord. And they find joy and satisfaction in this life and in the life to come because of the resurrection of Christ. see. I can say with full confidence that in your suffering, in his presence, there is fullness of joy. In your loss, in his presence, there is fullness of joy. In your, right, in your pain, at his right hand, are pleasures forevermore. In the storm, in his presence, there is fullness of joy. In the trial, at his right hand, are pleasures forevermore. In confusing and dark times, he makes known to you the path of life. And in our suffering, if we set the Lord before us, we can say the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places because even though everything seems to be going wrong, if I have the Lord, then I have everything that I need. That is what happens when someone cries out to the Lord in faith. Brothers and sisters, where have you set your eyes? Where have you set your heart? Is it upon the Lord? Or is it upon other gods? I have three short application points for you. Application point one, strive to have good theology. As we saw in point one, theology is important to taste the goodness of God. And God has revealed himself through the person of Jesus Christ. And the way we see it is through the scriptures. God has revealed to us who he is, his attributes, his plan of salvation, how he saves people, the reason he sent his son. And he tells us exactly how to worship him in spirit and truth and how to obey him. Having good theology is important and necessary for us to be able to say, I have no good apart from the Lord. What we think about God matters. What we believe about God matters. How we worship God matters. Having good theology is what should be fueling a life that is passionate for for the Lord, that is exemplifying that we have been redeemed by the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Strive to have good and proper theology. It is the truth of God's word, given in proper context, that should lead us to have a life that is on fire for the Lord, that seeks to put the flesh to death and to live to the glory of God. Application point two, delight in God's people. I didn't mention this earlier, but look at what verse 3 says in Psalm 16. He says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. It's interesting that David says This because if his only good is in the Lord, how can he also delight in people? The answer is that he calls them saints, meaning they are God's people. One of the means of grace that the Lord has given us is the blessing of many saints and the blessing of the local church. And one of the ways that we delight in God is actually by delighting in his people. If someone is saved, that means that the Holy Spirit is indwelling within them and that God is with them. So when we are together, we gather as a people that has one of the persons of the Trinity dwelling in each person. Each person is being uh, sanctified and transformed into the image of Christ. And when you see and when you delight in God's people, that rubs off on you. It encourages you to seek the Lord more. It should encourage us to run towards the Lord together. Uh, For the past four months on Tuesday mornings at 6.45 a.m., me and another brother from this church we jump on the phone together, Uh, we catch up for a few minutes, and then we pray. We pray for each other, we pray for the leaders of the church, we pray for the people in the church, we pray for those going through trials. And after we finish, I cannot tell you how much my heart is encouraged and refreshed because I have gone to the throne of grace with another saint seeking the Lord together. That is because this is the Lord's design for his people to strive together in unity, in prayer, in fellowship, to seek the face of the Lord together and to find their delight in him together. If we are not delighting in God's people, if we're missing church, only dipping our toes in the water and not being involved in the life of others, we are not fun- functioning in the way that God has intended us f- for us to fu- function. Delight in God's people. Application three. Set the Lord before you. Set the Lord before you. This Tuesday, as I said in the beginning, will be the start of many New Year's resolutions. Some that will last for a long time, some that will probably die out rather quickly, uh, many of them can be, and many of them can be really good things. But we need to ask ourselves: are the things that I am pursuing, do I think that will bring me ultimate happiness and satisfaction? I want to encourage you to examine your hearts in this regard. Where is your heart and mind pointing towards? Is it the Lord or other things? Instead of finding our satisfaction in the gifts and the benefits the Lord gives us, let us find our satisfaction in the Lord who is the giver of all good things. Ask yourself, am I loving the right things in the wrong way? Am I loving my sin more than God? As we go into 2024, I just want to encourage you all to set the Lord before you. If you're facing this way while the Lord is over here, I just encourage you to face, may your your eyes and your heart face where the Lord is. That the disposition of your heart returns to a pursuit of the Lord far above all other things. Then you and I will be able to say with full confidence, the lines have fallen for me. In pleasant places, indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I have set the Lord before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Now, I just want to repeat this one more time. If I were to sum up this sermon in one sentence, it would be this. The Lord is our ultimate good. And the reason he is our ultimate good is because of the hope and the peace that comes through the resurrection of Christ. And if we cry out to the Lord... We will be satisfied. Let's pray. Oh, dear Lord, as this is the last Sunday of the year, and I'm sure it's been a long year for many people, but I pray, Lord, that this sermon may, may have served in a way where we can examine ourselves and we can say, Am I set, on the Lord, before me? Is my heart set on the Lord? I pray that we may have a pursuit of you above all other things, that we may be able to say in 2024, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. May we know that you are our portion and you are the only one who can satisfy us completely. Lord, I pray these things in your son's name. Amen.